Okay. So Bryce is getting ready to do a series on Moses. and uh, Not a series, but the next couple of weeks are the continuing story of the, the, the book that he's using. It's called The Story. And uh, he's going to be talking about Moses for the next few weeks. And as soon as I heard that he was going to start talking about Moses, I got really excited because I just love the story of Moses. I love everything about Moses, but I especially like the one experience that Moses had when he asked the Lord to show him his glory. He said to the Lord, he said, show me your glory, Lord. And God responded by saying, I will show you my goodness. And Moses said, you know, I want to see your glory. I didn't ask for you. I want to see your glory. And then God said, well, I'll proclaim my name. And Moses was like, well, I want to see your glory. And then God says to him, I want you to cut out two stone tablets like the ones that you broke. And I want you to meet me on the mountain with those two stone tablets. You know the story. The first set of tablets, they were broken because they were worshiping idols and Moses threw the, uh, the tablets down and he ended up grinding them into powder and made the people drink them in their water. It was such a, an affront to God to um, have his law broken the way that they were breaking it. And it is any time that we break his law, you know, any time we just disregard his commands. But um, when Moses went up onto that mountain, he had an experience that I think every one of us needs to have. We all need to be asking, what is your glory, Lord? And this is how this whole experience started for me. I wanted to know what was God's glory. What is your glory, Lord? Is it something shiny? Is it something loud? Is it music? Is it, is it, ah, what is your glory? And through my own experience in trying to seek out what God's glory really is, I found Moses' experience. And I think that what Moses found is that it is God's character, which is contained in his law, his judgments and his statutes, that explain what the glory of God is. And when Moses was done up there on that mountain, and he came back down with those new new stone tablets, his face was shining. He came down and the people were scared to see his face. Do you remember that part of the story? He was shining with the glory of God. Then he had to wear a veil over his face. I would like to have that happen to me. Wouldn't you? I pray that as you listen to the words of this song that you realize that once you understand what the glory of God is, that you will never be the same. For you have found grace in my sight, and I 
So as Kathy uh, mentioned earlier, we are doing a, a series here uh, called The Story. And uh, the story is taking us through the Bible uh, in roughly 31 weeks. And, and it's encouraging us to look at the Bible as one uh, big overarching story, to recognize uh, the themes of the story and to see ourselves in all the stuff that is going on. So. If, if you're uh, new here with us this morning, or if you just don't have this information in the back, there is a sheet of paper uh, that has all of the scriptures that we are doing uh, each week. So uh, this morning, for example, we are uh, starting, as Kathy mentioned, the story of Moses. And so we are covering 17 chapters. Yes, that's right. 17 chapters of the book of Exodus. Um, so if you are interested in having this information, again, the sheet is on uh, the table back there in the foyer, and I encourage you to pick that up to read along during the week to um, know where we are this morning. <laughs> it could also be helpful in that way. 
<coughs> I'm going to have to have a few cough breaks here and there, so just be patient with me. In order to view the Bible as one big story, we do have to approach it from uh, a slightly different angle. And it, we have to look at the Bible in a slightly different way. As I've mentioned to you several times over the past several weeks, the, the way that we normally approach the Bible is, is as sort of like a code or uh, instructions for living. And the Bible is that. But the challenge of the story is to have us come and look at the Bible and to really step back from it a little bit. Uh, to look at stories that you've probably heard uh, growing up, that you've seen in TV movies, uh, that, you've, that, you've, that you know all about, and to look at them in a slightly different way. So our task is to recognize what is going on, how it's moving forward, and most importantly, what the story is about. So we've recognized that within the Bible story as a whole, there are basically three main characters. Okay, There is God... There is mankind and there is the tempter, the one who is trying to pull uh, man away from God and all that God wants. We've discovered some things about God, about mankind, and about the tempter. God is above all, before all, and over all things. He lovingly created the world and he created man to be in relationship with him. But man, from the very beginning of the story, chose to rebel against God and to disobey him. And part of the reason why we chose to rebel against God and to disobey him is because we fell under the influence of the tempter, the one who came to us and told us that we could have a life that was not only different from the life that God wanted for us, but that was better than the life that God wanted for us. And we bought into this lie. We accepted it as the truth. And we made a decision to move away from God. But even though we hurt God, God still deeply desires for us to be restored and in relationship with him. And it is this desire that really begins to drive the story forward. Now the story has taken a lot of twists and turns already. We've covered the entire book of Genesis in three weeks. Okay, so there is a lot that has happened in that time. We saw that God grew so frustrated with man that man had grown so wicked and so evil that God decided he had to do a hard reset. He had to start all over again. And so he flooded the earth and saved just Noah and his family in the hopes that he might have this close relationship with man that he wanted. But that fell apart again, but God had promised that he wouldn't destroy the earth again, that he wasn't going to do that kind of hard reset again. And so he starts over with Abraham, and his plan this time is that he is going to create his own nation, his own people, his own family. And so he called Abraham out to follow him. And in the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we saw that God is the covenant maker. He's the one who makes promises, and he is the one who keeps promises. But he's looking for someone in Abraham who will follow him and be faithful. And what that meant in the story is that Abraham had to step out in faith as if God had already done everything that he had promised he would do. God had promised he would make him a great nation, that he would give him descendants that were as numerous as the stars, as, as great as the sand. And he had to step out and say, God, I know you will do this in me. We also saw, though, that this relationship between God and man, this relationship that God is trying to create, is characterized by struggle. That there are a lot of hard things that come up, that there are a lot of difficulties that get in the way. 
But the struggle doesn't define the relationship that God has with his people. Instead, he is the one who helps them to overcome the struggle and he blesses his people when they cling to him. Now we moved out of the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into the story of Joseph. And Joseph's story is very different because in the story of Abraham, every time there was an obstacle that came in the way, God simply overcame it. And Abraham was able to be blessed no matter who he came up against. But in the story of Joseph, it's really different because Joseph faces so many different obstacles that are actually designed to stop him. His brothers, uh, instead of killing him, decide to sell him off into slavery. He's accused of raping someone and thrown into jail. He's left there and forgotten to rot. But from all of these places, and really even through them, God positions Joseph to rise to the highest level of the nation of Egypt. Pharaoh actually puts Joseph in charge and uses Joseph through all of these things to actually save the known world at the time. And we learn through these stories that God may not cause these bad things to happen to us in our lives, but the amazing thing is that God is able to accomplish what it is that he wants to accomplish even though terrible things may happen to us. That God is able to redeem all of the things that come our way. And that's exactly what Joseph's story is. It's a story of redemption. Of how God keeps his promise and how he does not let anything get in the way of what he wants to accomplish. So today, we are going to look at what is perhaps the seminal event in the history of the people of God, certainly to this point and certainly for the people of Israel to this day. It's a defining moment in the story. And we learn so much, but I'm just going to have to warn you right now. You're going to have to take 10 steps back from the story of the Exodus because there are things that you have never probably thought about before when it comes to how we look at this story. And if you've already thought about it, just pretend that you haven't later when you're talking to me. So buckle your seatbelts, skirt up your loins. It is time to jump into the Exodus. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now, this is sort of a weird turn to the story as we've been following it so far. Remember, God has a plan, right? And his plan was made in, was first sort of expressed in the promise that he made to Abraham. I am going to make you a great nation. 
You're going to have many descendants. You're going to have your own land. Just trust me and go. And so we waited, remember? We waited for this thing to grow. We waited for them to become a nation. But Abraham had one son, and his son had one son. And then finally, there were more sons, and they got to Egypt, and they had Joseph in the land, and they came to this place. But there's a problem. When they were there in Egypt, what began to happen? They multiplied. They grew. God blessed them and made them fruitful, just as he said they would. But there is one major issue with them growing and becoming fruitful. What is that? They lived in someone else's home. It was not their home. It was someone else's home. Now, here's what I mean when I say we need to take a huge step back this morning. There are, th- there are basically, what we see here is that there are basically two different timelines happening. Okay? So there are two different paths that humanity has taken. God has called Abraham out, and that story is the story we've been following. About God has been blessing Abraham and moving him forward. But there is another timeline that has been going on that basically involves the rest of humanity. Okay? So while Abraham has been moving this direction and creating his relationship with God and being blessed and all of his, all of his descendants are moving this direction, the rest of humanity is moving this way. And you have the rest of mankind which is growing, they're developing their own civilization, their own nations, and their own way of life. And a part of them developing their own way of life is they are developing their own religions. So all of these different nations, whether they're in Canaan or whether they're in Egypt or wherever they are, these people have their own gods. They have their own idols. They have their own practices. They have all of these different things that they do. And so here's a basic truth that is very true at the time that we pick up the Exodus story. There are a lot of gods on earth. There are a lot of gods. Gods are everywhere. And every nation, people, tribe, and clan has their own God, their own gods, their own definition of what the deity looks like. Now, the funny thing is, is that in the story as we've been following, this has not really become an issue to this point. In fact, if you think about it, what the Bible has done is basically concentrated on Abraham and God and how this nation is forming and everything else has just become sort of tangential to that story. When Abraham is out wandering into different areas, he encounters different people. In fact, he encounters Pharaoh. But when he encounters Pharaoh, does Pharaoh really have any impact on Abraham or alter his course at all? No. I mean, Abraham acts afraid of Pharaoh. He pretends that Sarah isn't his wife because he's afraid of what Pharaoh will do. But Pharaoh pays really no attention to him and actually gives Sarah back and says, why didn't you just tell me? And then Abraham goes on his way. And think about this. Even in the story of Joseph, Pharaoh, who is the king of the land, is just a side character to Joseph. Pharaoh doesn't even deny the existence of God. In fact, when Joseph 
finally finds himself in the presence of Pharaoh, interprets his dreams, and presents a plan. Do you remember what it is that Pharaoh says? This idea came from God. And God is blessing you. And therefore, I am putting you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. This is the flavor of the story that we have so far. That God is God, he is blessing his people, and whatever his people run into along the way is mainly just pushed aside by the story that God is wanting to tell and create. But all of that changes in the story of the Exodus. And it changes for this reason. What was once a family of, let's say, roughly 70 people, if you count all the men and women and children and all that by the time that everyone gets to Egypt with Joseph, has now become what historians estimate to be a group of about 600,000 males, not counting any women, female children, anything else within the story. So this is a pretty big deal. God really has blessed them. They have become fruitful and they have, become, and they have multiplied. And it's gotten so bad that Pharaoh looks at them and what does he recognize? These people are a danger to us because they are living in our land. And if they keep growing like they are and they realize how big they are, they can join with our enemies and do what? Take over Egypt. This is what he sees when he looks out there. But here's something you need to understand, okay? This is a family group, okay, that has grown to more than 600,000 people living somewhere else. So do you know what they are still not they are still not a nation. They are a huge group of gypsies. A huge group of gypsies. And when Pharaoh looks out at them, he says, we have to change something about this situation, otherwise they're going to take over. And what is the answer that he comes to? They will become our what? Slaves. And so he decides to work ruthlessly with them. He enslaves them. He uses them to build two different cities and store places. He, he puts them under his command to try to keep them in place. And then that doesn't really work because God still blesses them. So Pharaoh decides that he is going to kill the next generation of children that come along. Population control. He's the king. This is his land. He must protect his people. He's worried about these people rising up. And so he decides he's going to kill the next generation of children. But we see a shift happen that we haven't seen yet. And that is this. The people of God who are supposed to be serving who? God are now being forced to serve who? Pharaoh. They have a different king. Than God. This is an important development. Because now, for the first time in this story of God developing his own people, the gods of earth are getting in the way of the God of heaven. 
And they are taking over his people. Now, as if that weren't bad enough, there's one more major plot point that this is what I guess you probably haven't considered before. The people of Israel don't really know who God is. Think about it. How long does it take to move from roughly 70 individuals to more than 600,000? Time. Right? It takes time, which tells us something. Generations have passed since Joseph brought his family to Egypt. Which means that all of these generations have grown up as what? Egyptians. They have grown up as Egyptians. And then they were made into Egyptian slaves. Now, we want to argue with this. Of course, they knew who God was. And in fact, the Bible tells us that God heard the cries of his people. But here's what I want you to understand. You need to alter your perception of what it meant for them to know God at this point. There is no scripture. There are no temples. They don't even have any religious rituals. Any places that have been significant to them as a people with God are hundreds of miles away from them. They have nothing but Egypt. And some sort of foggy idea of what God promised their great, 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 great grandfather. Somewhere long ago in a faraway place. They are godless gypsies. Lost in this place. They are, for all intents and purposes, Egyptian slaves. So, what is this story about then? Because we have always wanted to make it about the people and what they go through and what they struggle with. But the story is about, at least this first part in particular, is about something very different than that. Because you see, God still has a promise to fulfill, right? What is his promise? He will make them into a nation. And he is still going to fulfill that promise. But this is a story about who God is in comparison to what the world has created to be God. As much as we would like to make the story about the people of Israel, this part is really not about them. It is about who God is and how he stands apart from every other God that man has created. So let's look at the passage. So if you know the story, there's so much to cover today. So really, if you know the story, okay, Pharaoh (coughs) commands that, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) Pharaoh commands that all of the all the children will be killed. Moses is put in the basket. He's floating down the Nile. He's picked up and brought into Pharaoh's house. He's raised there in the home of Pharaoh until one day he kills an Egyptian and then he runs away into the wilderness. There he meets a cool dude named Jethro because you have to be a cool dude if your name is Jethro and marries his daughter and he's taking care of sheep out there. And it is where, there that we see uh, this encounter that he has with God. 
Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if, he, and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. Okay. There is so much we could talk about here, um, but we're just going to focus on a few, a few key things. First of all, God has heard the cries of his people. Okay, So though God has been far away and though the people don't really know who he is, they have cried out to him. And God has heard the cries of his people and he is going to act on their behalf. 
And so he approaches Moses and there is no other way to look at this job than to say that he gives Moses an impossible task. He tells Moses that Moses is to go before the king again of the known world, a man who is considered by himself and by his people to be God on earth. And he is going to need to make a demand of this man that he is to let God's people go by command of the one true living God because this God says so. Now, there are a couple of factors at play here. Number one, Moses doesn't really know who God is. I know that's a weird thing to say. We expect him to. But again, we're talking generations from when they have had a close relationship with God. And if that weren't enough, where did Moses grow up? In the house of Pharaoh. Which means he knows even less than the average Israelite slave that is walking around at the time. Now, there is something about God clearly that seems familiar to Moses. But you've got to keep in mind, God does things in a particular way to try to prove to Moses one thing. What is it that he wants Moses to know? That he is God. He wants Moses to know that he is God. So what is the first thing he does to try to prove to Moses that he is God? He burns a bush without burning it which is a miraculous thing that this bush is on fire, but it's not burning. And in one of my favorite moments of the Bible, Moses walks up to it to see the bush speaks to him and Moses speaks back. I love it. It's just so great. And, and Moses speaks back to this bush. Moses knows that he is talking to God and he recognizes that this God is powerful, but it's not like meeting an old friend. It's more like meeting someone that he has heard about. And he asks him this question. This is how we know the state of everything. He asks God an important question, which I think we have glossed over. If I go to these people and I tell them that God sent me, who do I say sent me? I can't just walk up to them and say, the God of the burning bush sent me. They're not going to know who that is. So what am I supposed to call you? That they'll know who you are. And God's answer is so fascinating. And it's an answer in two parts. The first thing he does is he gives Moses his name. Now, we could have a whole hour where we could just talk about what this name is. Okay, we're, we're not going to get into it. We're going to go with the most simple definition right now. He says, I am. Now, think about the significance of that name within the context of the fact that no one knows who he is. We could get into the depth of it all, but what does God tell him his name is? I am. I am God. I am the one. There are all sorts of ideas about what this name means. But the most simple truth is that God wants his people to know that he is the God who is. 
He is the God who exists. He is the God who moves and acts. He is the God who has been. He is the God who will be. And he is ready to act on behalf of his people. What is the first identity he wants them to know? That he is. What is the second thing he wants them to know? That he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that if they remember anything about where they came from, they will hear those names and they will say, if you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you are the God who promised us we will have our own place, we will be our own people, we will be our own nation. Moses is afraid and he doesn't want to go. And he gives all the reasons why he doesn't want to go. I cannot go talk to this king who thinks he's God and tell him the real God says, release all of your slave labor that you have built your entire economy on and let them go. But God reassures him time and again. He promises him that he will have everything that he needs. In fact, he even says to Moses, look, man, you don't even have to talk. I will give you someone that will talk for you. And I will speak to you. Remember, he's arguing with the bush. I will speak to you. You will speak to Aaron. Aaron will speak to the people. Just go and do what I need you to do. And just like we saw with Abraham, as powerful as God is, as much as he wants to deliver, as much as he is the real God, what does he still need? He needs someone to step out and go for him so that the people will know that he is God. So Moses went, he took Aaron, he confronted Pharaoh, he told Pharaoh to let the people go, and Pharaoh said... No, it's, it's a shock. Pharaoh said no. He asked Pharaoh to let the people go out into the wilderness to worship the one true God. And Pharaoh said no. Why? He's the one true God. Why would he let his slaves go out and worship some other God? And then, just because he can... Pharaoh makes things more difficult to prove a point. The Israelite overseers, they're still building and slaving, remember, realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand... He will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. 
I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. What did you hear more than once in that, in that statement? I am the Lord. And I will do all these things. So what? You will know I am the Lord. Because what do they not know? That he is the Lord. Why? Because there is this God in their land who, when, was, when this God was challenged, what did he do? He tightened his fists and he made their life more difficult. Why? Because he can. And at this point, it seems like this fool Moses who came out from his burning bush in the wilderness is just making their life harder. And how can this guy stand up to this God? And there is something we need to recognize here. God does not get angry with Moses or the Israelites. This response is not out of anger to them. But he responds to one person directly through this entire statement. Who is that person? He responds to Pharaoh. The statement is a response to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has tried to assert his power and say he is God. And what is God's response? I am God. And this is how I will take down Pharaoh. I will deliver you with mighty acts. What is God essentially saying? He is what? God and he is stronger than Pharaoh is. Pharaoh's act of might was to increase the number of bricks they were going to have to make. God says, my acts of might are going to break him. I am the Lord. He is not. I am the Lord. I will do these things and you will know I am the Lord. I will stand up to Pharaoh and I will show who is God. God puts himself directly against Pharaoh and he promises that he will come out on top. And when he comes out on top, then his people will know that he is the Lord. He will be their God. They will be his people. And he is going to show them who he is. So how does God do this? These are not empty words. How does God do this? He decides that he is going to push Pharaoh until Pharaoh finally says, yes, you are God, and yes, your people can go free. And when Pharaoh releases them, then they will know he is God because he has delivered them from the one who is supposed to be king. And so he decides to send plagues to the land. 
The plagues are designed to be displays of God's power that nothing else can duplicate. And Pharaoh will experience these things and he will have to acknowledge God's authority and let the Israelites go. But Pharaoh, as God on earth, doesn't want to do that. So the plagues come. And who do they affect? The Egyptians. And who do they not affect? The Israelites. But more than that, and this is something that you may not have seen before, each plague is a show of God's strength and it is designed to fly in the face of one of the Egyptian gods. There's a chart up here on the screen which hopefully you can read. My notes will be posted online later if you want to go back and find this. But just take a quick moment uh, to look at this here with me. The first plague, the entire Nile River was turned to blood. Okay? The entire Nile River was turned to blood from Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. That flies against the face of Hopi and Isis, who were the god and goddesses of the Nile. And Osiris, where the Nile was considered to be his bloodstream. The God of Israel literally turned it to blood. The second plague was frogs from Exodus 8, 1 through 15. That flew in the face of the god Haggit, who was the goddess of birth and had a frog as a head. God generated frogs. I mean, lots of frogs. Okay, frogs everywhere. Number three, gnats, which went against Seth, the god of the desert. Number four, flies, which went against uh, the sun god. The flies were so numerous, they blocked out the sun. Uh, the death of all the livestock, which, which went against um, Hathor, the goddess with the cow head, and Apis, the bull, do- the bull god. <clears throat> Boils, which went against Sekhmet, the goddess of disease, Sunu, the pestilence god, and Emotep, the god of medicine. Hail, which went against Nut, the sky goddess, and Seth, the god of storms. Locus, which went against Osiris, the god of crops and fertility. And darkness, which again went against Ra, the sun god, and Horus, the sun god. So in every single plague, not only did he do something that Pharaoh couldn't stop, he did something that went directly against what an Egyptian god was supposed to be able to do. Or control or something that represented them. And in every single step, God shows that he is the one true God and that all of these Egyptian gods are completely fake. Because can Pharaoh stop it? Can his magicians stop it? Do their prayers stop it? No. It comes, it destroys Egypt and Egyptian households and crops while the Israelites are like, it's sunny. Their, their cows are having calves, right? Their crops are growing faster than ever. It is a blatant and obnoxious display of the might and power of God against these other gods that claim to have power. Which leads us to the last plague. Something that's important to note here is that Pharaoh had an opportunity at any time, at any time to change his mind and to let the people of God go. And he refuses and he refuses and he refuses and he refuses until we get to this last plague, which is the taking of the firstborn. 
Now, this plague is a difficult one. But the reasoning and the story itself is clear. As much as you may not like the fact that God took the firstborn of Egypt, I don't think God liked it much either. Can't speak for him, but there is a clear message here. Pharaoh will not listen to God. His heart is hard. He refuses to bend. And so God acts in this decisive way because what does he want? He wants his people to be set free. And Pharaoh, who insists he is God on earth, will not bend. And what has God promised he will do? That he will break him. And so God breaks him. Through this plague, there is the introduction, though, of a couple of important principles. One, God is willing to act completely and decisively on behalf of his people. But secondly, the idea of sacrifice. God demands that his people sacrifice a lamb, that they take the blood of the lamb and rub it around the outside of their door so that when the angel of death comes over the city, the angel will pass over their homes and just go to the homes of the Egyptians. Salvation was coming, but something had to give its life in order for salvation to come. After this last plague, Pharaoh allowed them to leave. And God, in what must have been this miraculous thing, led the people of Israel, again, more than 600,000 people, out of the nation of Israel. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. He literally, God literally led them out of Egypt in a display of nature's power. And it's over, right? Pharaoh changes his mind. How can I let these people go? They are our slaves. I am Pharaoh. We are Egypt. Who is this God? Who are these people? They're not us. They belong to us. Let's go get them. And so Pharaoh and his entire army with chariots, which is a big deal, chariots, ride out to chase down this band of men, women, children, and animals that are wandering into the desert. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and, they, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, <laughs> Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? This is such a smart alecky question right here. <clears throat> what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Leave us, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance. The Lord will bring you today. 
The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army. Through his chariots and his horsemen, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. They look at their situation and they're afraid. And why are they afraid? Because the strongest army in the world is coming after them. And they wonder, what are we going to do because we're not an army? And when an army's coming after you, you can either run and let them catch you from behind, or you can turn and fight, but they're not an army. We're talking horses and chariots and swords and spears. And they want to give up. And what is God's response? What are you so worried about? Haven't you seen what I just did? Fine. Fine. Let them come. Let them come. And he tells Moses to go out and to do what? Stretch his arms out over the sea. You're going to pass through the sea to the other side. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make Egypt chase you. And by the time this is all over, what will the world know? I am God. I am the Lord. I'm going to use these fools. So watch them come. Then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Have you ever read an article or seen something where they tried to explain the parting of the Red Sea? <clears throat> yes. This is not that story. First of all, it starts out with the pillar of fire and cloud rotating around itself, protecting the people of Israel, giving light on one side, darkness on the other. Moses stretches his hand out over the sea and walls of water come up on either side and the people pass through, this is something we ignore, on dry ground. Dry ground. At the bottom of the sea where the sea just was. Dry ground. They pass through. There is no way to duplicate this without the power of God. And it showed his ability to control what was created, but more than anything else, it is a display of God's awesome power. That he parted the sea and sent his people through on dry ground. And then what did he promise would happen? The Egyptians would chase them into the sea. What were they thinking? 
How at this point, after seeing all of this, could they think we are going to teach these people a lesson? I know that God hardened their hearts, but how can this happen? The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, because it's taking them a while to cross the sea, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army, and he threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, finally, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting against Egypt. Really? Do you think so? Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and the chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. What did God prove? Did he need to? Yes. He needed to show the world that this nation, this land, this place, this God is nothing compared to me. And he needed to prove to his people who didn't know who he was, who didn't know if they could trust him, who had spent generations being mistreated by other people, that he is God. That they would know, that the world would know that he is God. And think about the story we've been looking at. What is the one thing that the world has forgotten? That he is God. They forgot that. They had no sense for what that meant. And they put animals in his place. Statues of gold and silver. Things they made with their own hands and then fell on the ground and worshipped. Then they will know that I am God. When I lead you out of this place. When I destroy your enemies. When I show these people who dare to stand up and say, I can't do anything, that I am the Lord then they will know that I am God. Then you will know that I am God. God will keep his promises. God will act on behalf of his people. And God wants his people He wants them to be His. And He wants the world to know that He is God. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this story, which is so big. But God, in the sheer enormity of this story, it tells us how big You are that you are a God who does amazing 
and miraculous things, but not just because you can. Father, instead you act on behalf of your people to deliver them from the things that would oppress them. And Father, you, the God that controls nature, that parted the sea, that defeated the greatest army that the Israelites had known, you are the God who goes before us, behind us, around us. You are the God who delivers us, who leads us into salvation. And God, there is no enemy that can stand in front of you. For you are God. May we know that today. In the name of your son, Jesus, who brings salvation to us, whose blood is spread over the door of our hearts, that death may never touch us. We pray all these things. Amen.